Well, welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. The Hoover Institution at Stanford University is one of the nation's preeminent research centers. For more than a century, our mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts on, on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. As we look for ways to mitigate the potential effects that the coronavirus have had on the U.S. and on the world, I hope you will find value in these important discussions. Today we'll discuss the impact of COVID-19 on our schools with two of our education experts. I want to remind you that we'll be, we'll be taking audience questions and I encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from Eric Hanishek and Margaret Raymond. Rick Hanishek is the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. A leader in economic analysis of educational issues, his research spans the impact of achievement of teacher quality, accountability, and class size reduction. He pioneered measuring teacher quality on the basis of student achievement and has extensively analyzed the economic impact of improved educational quality. Mackie Raymond is a distinguished research fellow at the Hoover Institution and the founder and director of the Center for Research on Educational Outcomes, or CREDO, at Stanford University. CREDO's work, which analyzes and evaluates programs that aim to improve outcomes for K-12 students in public schools, is heavily relied upon by policymakers at all levels. And for full disclosure, I need to remind everybody that uh, Mackie and Rick are married, a long married couple, and we're glad to have them here. Rick and Mackie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Um, you know, even in the best of times, uh, we worry about our American educational system. Uh, the COVID-19 uh, crisis has really put some crimps into that system. Rick, I want to I back up, though, and just let you set the table, as it were. Tell us a little bit about the current state of education prior to COVID-19. What was the economic value of K-12 through education? And what were some of the challenges that we were confronting prior to COVID-19? Tom, the starting point is that we know uh, as economists about the value of education better than almost any other thing in the economy. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of study of how quality of education pays off. Um, the interest in future economic gains drives a lot of decision-making of individual parents and students about going to school. What is less well-known is uh, first, that the quality of education has an enormous impact on the future economic growth of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the future well-being of the United States is heavily dependent upon having high-quality schools because it's the quality of the workforce that, in fact, drives economic growth. Mm -hmm. Before, if we went back to February of this year or so, um, the real emphasis every place was how do we improve the quality of our schools mm -hmm. because our schools have not been particularly competitive in an international sense. Our schools on average are uh, below the average of the developed countries of the world, the OECD countries of the world. Um, and there was a big effort to try to find ways to improve the quality of our students and their mm -hmm. learning. Um, that's been really hit hard by COVID, which has yeah. made it much more challenging to yeah. see how we can do this. Before you go into COVID, Rick, when you said our schools were below average relative to other OECD countries, and you mentioned the word quality, how was that measured? In what way are our students uh, performing below average? 
Well, the, the simplest measure is that we have a series of international math tests. Uh, the PISA test is the best known, where you take a math problem and you march it around the world and see how many people can solve that problem. And you get a good in understanding of the quality of students in terms of their analytical thinking from that. Uh, the US is 31st out of the 76 countries that took the last PISA exams. Right. Um, and that is not uh, the position we want to be in. Got it. So let's move on to COVID. How has COVID-19 complicated the educational objectives and outcomes in the, in the U.S.? Well, I think what, uh, what you have to recognize first is the schools have been better prepared for disasters than probably any other government agency, except maybe the Defense Department. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're prepared for tornadoes, they're prepared for earthquakes, for floods, for shooters, and no thought had been given to a pandemic and closing the schools for a long period of time. So right. while the schools were well prepared for this, the school system is not one that pivots quickly and moves right. uh, uh, accurately to new things. Got it. So there was really no, like there are, there are plans for earthquakes or fires or even school shootings, there was really no plan in place amongst schools or school districts about how to deal with the pandemic, which caused everybody to shelter in place, for example. No, that's absolutely correct. And we'll talk a little bit about, you know, they've been wandering, trying to figure out how to use yeah. technology better and yeah. how to organize classes better and so forth. Um, but it's been a slow struggle and hasn't been very, um, overall implemented in ways that have improved. Yeah, Mac, let's go to you. How have the schools and the school districts around the country actually responded to the shelter in place orders that have been put out by governors? Sure, so the shelter in place orders came from governors, usually uh, in most cases by about the middle of March. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's interesting is that even though there was uh, discussion and, and observation of the problem up till then, Schools, for the most part, did not react until the governor actually issued an order to close the school buildings and ordered educators to take uh, action on finding alternative ways to uh, instruct students remotely. Mm -hmm. um, within the first month or so, uh, there was a tremendous amount of chaos and, and, and scrambling around. Uh, by the end of that first month, though, 96% of schools had some kind of instructional program in place for their students. Uh -huh. um, that, that has a lot of variation to it. Um, about 60% of the districts decided to go with some kind of digital instructional model, primarily. And then another 25% or so went to a blending of uh, digital instruction and uh, mailing out of worksheets. These are called packets. Right. And then the remaining schools did packets only. And so even with that variation, though, um, it's, it's interesting to see that those choices um, did not actually take into account the capability of students to take advantage of whatever the solution was. Yeah. And so you see not only variation in the offering of, of instructional opportunity, but you also see a wide variation in the, in the kinds of students and the numbers of students that are actually able and uh, actively taking that offer up. Right. So what do, you, what do you mean by that? There was, uh, didn't take advantage of the differences. So for example, there are some school districts that are poor or they may have families who on average or have lower education 
or they may have differential access to internet, internet or technology tools. Is that what you're talking about? That the plans didn't didn't accurately reflect the differences? Yes. So in in many cases, uh, the decision about the instructional model was not um, uh, did not take into account how broadly internet access or broadly digital tools were across the students who were going to be doing that. Um, I should also say that one of the drivers of these decisions was the comfort level of the educators themselves to do that pivot. And yeah. so in, in some cases where there was broadly available internet access or where the um, students could be expected to have their own digital tools, school districts still said we're going to we're going to do the packet or a blended approach because it was easier on the teachers got it understand i mean it's kind of good news that 96 percent of the school districts though came up with a plan within a month and implemented it but i would imagine that there were some things lost in the plan the spring isn't a very important time for education a lot of assessments going on testing etc what what was lost in the way in which we pivoted to these different models of educational delivery well so Two things to answer your question. One, almost immediately it became clear that um, states would not be administering their state achievement tests this spring. Mm -hmm. uh, both they didn't have the vehicles for actually administering the tests, and two, they didn't think it would be a fair thing to do to measure student achievement as though it was a full year under these conditions. Um, so we're losing a big source of information about what kids actually are learning in this time period. But some researchers in the country have made estimates that uh, in reading, the average student will lose about 30% of a year's learning this year, and in math, they will lose 50% of a year's learning this year. Those are big changes, um, and there doesn't seem to be any ability at this point to estimate from the point at which the school buildings were closed whether any additional learning was go is going on or not, or whether that's equally shared across all student groups. Yeah. Are either of you engaged with uh, political entities, the U.S. government or state uh, school districts, to try to replace the achievement tests that were canceled? I know assessment and measuring student performance is going to be important going forward. Are people actively working on that problem? Well, let, well, let me go. Uh, whoops. Go ahead, Mackie. Well, I was just going to mention that um, the Credo team actually has partnered with 20 of our state partners. We have 33 state partners and 20 of them have agreed that we will work with them to try to create proxy estimates for what those state achievement tests would have been. Um, and we're doing that with uh, a variety of simulations that we're working on right now. And mm -hmm. I could say that, that the U.S. Department of Education has been extremely enthusiastic that we do that work because mm -hmm. they too are interested in those, those numbers. It's not just a, a function of knowing what students know at this particular point, but all kinds of programs at both the federal and the state level rely on those numbers to drive program and policy decisions. Right. right. So if I might interject quickly, the, um, uh, for the last uh, 25 years, we've had uh, something called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which allows us to measure the trends in student performance by individual states and allows us to see which states are doing well and so forth. There's supposed to be a, another um, round of testing in math and reading in 2021 in the spring. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we end this call, I'm going to go to the National Assessment Governing Board meeting yeah. uh, to talk about whether it's going to be feasible 
to have a 2021 um, testing regime. Yeah. My yeah. own opinion is that we want to work as hard as we can to do that because there's no way you can improve the system or keep it going if you don't know where you're at. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Mackie, Craig, I, I'm going to ask both of you to comment on this. I have an interesting question from Craig, and he goes, and it has to do with the fact that we pivoted to mostly online or, or you know, virtual ways of teaching our students. Craig asks, what do we now understand about the importance of teachers and students being together in the same room for learning outcomes? What's the state of knowledge on that? So I don't think we know the answer yet. Um, we've tried to do distance learning uh, for a long period of time in rural areas and so forth uh, for maybe three decades and haven't done that very successfully. Some are successful, others aren't. I yeah. think the general consensus is nobody wants to learn just sitting in front of a computer terminal, but we have yet to work out the exact mix of how much the teacher is there, what the teacher is doing, how much is individualized instruction from the computer and so yeah. forth. Um, and uh, I don't think we're going to learn that from this experience because there's such chaos right now. Yeah. yeah. Mackie? Well, I have a slightly different take on it, which is that the, the typical relationship between a teacher and a student that happens in a classroom in a school building is not being translated to an online setting at this point. Right. And the reason for that is because there is an active expectation that parents are going to be co-educators. And parents vary in their ability or willingness to do that. But at this point, we don't have a dyad, we have a triangle. And so it's really kind of a different challenge to figure out whether the parents are basically rowing in the same direction as the teacher and are they in fact adding additional supports and value um, or have they abdicated or are they actively resisting? And there are cases of all of those going on at this point. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Maggie, thanks for the update on how schools have pivoted, but let me, let me ask a harder question. What do you see the recovery looking like? And by recovery is a weird word to use here, right? Because we don't know where we're going. But how, how, what's the next adaptation in, in K-12 education uh, as we confront this virus? Well, I think that is the $64 million question that's on the table for all of K-12 at this point. Um, I will say that for the most part, state agencies and districts and school leaders have been focusing on the pivot. And they're only now starting to think about what happens when we want to try to reopen physical school buildings. Yeah. And I think those are going to look very different, not just from the social distancing perspective, but I think the number of teachers and the number of students who are willing to come back is going to be a very interesting number to watch. Yeah. There are still going to be people who are interested in participating but don't want to be in a school building. So there will be probably teachers who are interested in teaching remotely, teachers who are interested in being in the physical classroom. Yeah. I think the the opportunity uh, to come back is probably one that a number of teachers are going to walk away from. I think we're going to see a redu reduction in the teacher force. They're just not interested in doing this any longer. And so I think you're going to see a real staff shortage come September yeah. or whenever we open. Wow. Rick, do you have any forecasts on the immediate recovery process in K-12 education? Well, in the immediate sense, I think schools are going to have a lot of turmoil in the fall because yeah. of what Mackie said, that you're, there's probably going to be increased retirements uh, or non-compatible non working conditions for teachers. Uh, but schools are going to be 
very reluctant to hire a lot of new people, even when we go right to the end, because yeah. the budget uncertainty, so we might talk about later, but- Yeah, yeah. Um, got it. We'll talk about that later. Let me ask you this, Rick, because I know you, you study so much the international experience with K through 12. Martin asked the following question. He says, there are schools in other countries that are seeking to operate on site or with a combination of on-site and remote learning during this time. Is there anything that the U.S. could learn from these experiences? Well, I think most countries are doing exactly what we're doing. They're experimenting under, uh, under the gun. They're forced yeah. to change on the fly. Um, I know that my uh, colleagues in Germany um, are going through a phased re-entry of their kids into the school system where they're trying to go back to pretty much normal school half time. Mm -hmm. So they split classes and half of it is uh, done at home with various learning aids and half of it is done in schools. Yeah. They don't know, they're experimenting. Um, I think there are a lot of models to try, but we don't have any evaluation or scientific evidence to make reasonable choices among them. Yeah. Rick Mackey mentioned that we might have a teacher shortage or an excess of teachers from a system as it tries to sort itself out. Have you heard anything to that effect? And what's your thought on that? Well, I think that that's possible. And one of the questions is going to be how, how we deal with um, lower budgets, with fewer teachers. Yeah. Um, before this all hit, there was a lot of discussions about uh, enhanced teacher accountability at, at school and teacher accountability based yeah. on tests. But yeah. in fact, um, as Mackie mentioned, most states have given up on their regular state testing now. And there's going to yeah. be a lot of pressure to keep uh, from going back into using that information. You think that's, that's a, a problem? Is that a long run trend, Rick? Do you, do you think this whole move towards accountability over the past five or 10 years? is going to be pushed by the wayside until we get an, a complete adaptation to the new environment? Yes, I'm very worried about that. Um, uh, we have some history there. Um, the, the longer run history is that when we introduced test accountability under No Child Left Behind, our schools actually did better. It was yeah. a positive force. And it's one of the few uh, policies that has had uh, broad-based in uh, improvements in learning. But there has been all kinds of pressure to stop it. So that when we went to the experiment with different curriculum, with common core curriculum, yeah. many states gave up testing for a year with the hope that we could um, get rid of it altogether in many cases. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be intensified here. People are going to say, well, the world is different. How can we test people? Because uh, the world is different. How can we just assess their knowledge? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Mackie, uh, what, what does Credo have to say about the impacts of a weakening accountability system for the performance of K-12 education? Well, we think the loss of those, those kinds of information uh, extend far, far broader than just accountability. Those numbers actually drive a tremendous amount of work uh, in program development, in targeting resources to students yeah. who need it most, and so on. And so we're, we're watching states have real concerns about not being able to drive their own policy and program decisions because of the loss of those data. 
That's yeah. why our team is is partnering to to try to replace those numbers on behalf of our state partners. Um, yeah. I think the 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 big challenge for us is that the loss of those data have a secondary impact, and that is that there are students who are being endorsed whose education status is being endorsed as sufficient when in fact it's not. And specifically the thing that, that is, is front of mind right now is that there are high school seniors who are being graduated, um, mm -hmm. given a diploma, uh, and, and told that they are ready for uh, post-secondary life. Now that, that deficit extends back through the grades just as much, mm -hmm. but based on a study that, uh, that was done as part of the Hoover Education Success Initiative, we already saw a decline over the last 10 years in the graduation requirements that seniors had to face. Yeah. And now we've weakened them even further. And so mm -hmm. those students are going to face many, many more challenges as they try to go to whatever comes next, whether it's job training or higher education or going into the military. Yeah, and Rick, I know as an economist, you try to measure this without remedial effects to try to address some of the educational gaps that Mackey identified. How will students who are now in the K through 12 system um, be injured or hurt um, um, by this educational gap that's growing? Well, as I said at the beginning, the one thing we know maybe best among all economic facts is that better skills lead to higher incomes for individuals. Mm -hmm. And we know quite a bit about that even if people get high school diplomas, it doesn't mean that they have the learning and skills that are going to be rewarded in the labor market, because the labor market is much tougher than the graduation certification market. Yeah. And um, the best estimate is sort of related to the numbers that Mackey gave uh, earlier on learning loss, is that if everything goes back to normal in September, which is unlikely, the average person in the current K to 12 cohort will lose three to 6% of their lifetime earnings. Mm -hmm. that, that's a big number that yeah. we're gonna, if we don't do something about it, um, everybody is in this cohort is going to be significantly hurt. And it's gonna, be, it's gonna be distorted because uh, we have all kinds of reasons to believe that disadvantaged students are gonna be hit yeah. even worse um, the more advantaged students have parents that can figure out how to provide some of the learning at home better than disadvantaged mm -hmm. kids on average, and that's going to really um, come home. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Hoover Institution Senior Fellow Eric Hanischek and Distinguished Research Fellow Margaret Raymond. You can find more research by Hoover Fellows at our website, hoover.org. I'm getting a lot of questions about budgets, state budgets, and and those kind of things. Let me rerun, and Rick and Mackey, you could respond to it. Leroy asked, most states will see tax revenues fall sharply over the next 12 to 18 months. How will the states be able to overcome COVID, the COVID-19 impact on learning uh, objectives and learning outcomes with fewer funds? Well, it, it is true, I think, that everybody believes that the spending per pupil will, will fall come the next year or two because of the lack of budgets. In February, if you look, say, in California, everybody thought that the state coffers were just full, filled with money and that schools were going to get a big boost in their funding. 
than now and nobody believes that. Um, a lot depends on how we respond to lower budgets. If we just respond the way we did in 2008, um, we're, we're not going to improve things, but we probably won't be hurt that much. In mm -hmm. 2008 was the first time in 100 years that spending per pupil fell in schools after the recession. Mm -hmm. um, and what the majority of uh, schools did with uh, less funds was to have reductions in force, cut back on teachers, and they did it by applying LIFO rules, last in, first out, so that the most junior teachers were let go uh, across the board with no attention to how effective these teachers were. A lot of work was done after 2008 to suggest that if schools paid more attention to how they rift teachers, in fact, if they work to keep the good teachers and get rid of the less effective teachers, mm -hmm. actually performance could have gone up. In fact, performance was pretty steady after the 2008 recession. We might be in for a deeper recession this time, um, and, but there's always a lot of turmoil and that doesn't help schools to have turmoil. Yeah, Mackie, implications of the tightening budget for schools? Well, so I think that the, uh, we, we may be actually facing a little bit of a Hunger Games situation where all kinds of demands for state budgets um, force decision makers into making some really unpopular uh, strategic choices. And specifically, I think we, we have a long history of, of real short run focus for uh, policymakers and decision makers at the state levels. Mm -hmm. And so I think the pressures of uh, taking care of, of the unemployment problem and trying to restore some stability in the in the business end of of, uh, of the economy in the states is is going to be the place where the predominance of attention is going to be spent. Um, I think they lose a real opportunity because this is a moment where we could in fact uh, force some strategic choices in schools that could put us on a much better trajectory in the years to come. So, so Chad. If I could, could I just inter yeah. interject for a minute I, and give you a such as. Um, okay. One of the um, things that was being discussed very actively last year, over the last couple of years, is whether we could evaluate teachers on their effectiveness and reward the really good teachers to keep them and uh, not keep the less effective. Because it turns out that uh, a small proportion of the teachers who are quite ineffective does real damage to our system. Yeah. Right. We have a few examples, Washington DC, Dallas, Texas, where they radically change their pay and retention and reward system to concentrate on effectiveness of teachers. Mm -hmm. And what we saw was that that helped, that it made a big difference. So mm -hmm. if we got to that point, um, we would be better off. On the other hand, this also, movement in that direction also led to some conflict. The yeah. teachers unions on average were not very pleased with the idea of that movement. And in fact, um, had we not had COVID-19, we might have been getting into some more uh, sort of union unrest in our schools. Absolutely. Interesting. <laughs> uh, you, know, you brought up unions, Rick. We have a couple questions here, and I'll just read them to you. You can 
take it where you want. Lou asked, are teachers union helping or hampering the process of adaptation to COVID-19? Doug asked, how many of the countries ahead of us <laughs> academics have unionized teachers? So the general question is, what are the effects of unionization on the educational outcome process? And will teachers unions help with the adaptation process? Mackie, maybe uh, you can go first while Rick is coughing. I'm, I'm, I'm back. You're back, okay, good. <laughs> um, if you look internationally, almost every country has strong teachers unions. They vary tremendously in how supportive they are for productive learning changes and, and productive things. Our teachers unions, even at the beginning of the shelter in place orders around the states, started to show that they weren't going to be uh, very helpful. We saw a couple of the larger teachers unions came out very forcefully to argue that teachers should uh, work to rules, work to the contract, and in fact go beyond that of how much they should participate. I hope that was just um, a temporary uh, bit of bad behavior because we really do have to get together and get to a solution to this. Kids are being hurt and we have to work together in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Mackie, any inputs on that? Well, so the other place that I think there's going to be drawn lines and a battleground is um, that as certainly as budgets tighten up, it's going to exacerbate an existing conflict between opponents and supporters of charter schools. This is an area that my team knows a lot about because we've been studying them for the last 15 years. And the, the landscape has gotten much more politicized, not only in states that have already taken action to curtail charter school um, function and expansion, such as California and Massachusetts, but we see signals now that other states are teeing up for those same kind of battles. That was before COVID-19. Now put it under the budget constraints. And you can easily imagine that there's going to be a lot of hue and cry about where dollars should be directed and who's best equipped to spend those dollars. So yeah. we're expecting much more conflict on the charter front. Yeah. There, uh, you expect, you know, David asked the question, do you expect an expansion of school choice initiative because of this? You say conflict, do you have a sense of which way the conflict is going to go? Mackie? Well, it's an interesting question, and it's one that we're currently studying in New York State. Yeah. Um, we, we think that uh, performance of, of schools in terms of how much students learn takes an undersized role in the debate. Quality doesn't seem to be much of a driver of this discussion, and that's really unfortunate. Um, however, I think that in this particular context, we may actually be seeing an expansion of school choice, not just charter schools, not just private schools, but a lot of hybrid models. Private schools are under the gun right now. I can see charter private school hybridization. I can see in some places districts and charters collaborating, mm -hmm. and especially with this idea of uh, folks who want to actually have some more direct role in their children's education. I can see brick and mortar school and homeschooling be a new hybrid. So I think school choice is going to take on a new kind of meaning yeah. in the coming years. Jeremy asks, with such huge losses in knowledge across the summer, and even more with COVID, is now the time to switch school schedules to year-round attendance like most of the world? I think there's been a movement, uh, a lot of discussion of that, and it's been heightened by the COVID-19 
issues. Um, partly, maybe the remedial instruction comes over the summer or something like that. We're still pretty slow on that. Um, mm -hmm. The schools in the U.S. are almost uniformly 180 days when the, the world is working, as opposed to 200 to 220 in a lot of other places of the world. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if this will have any impact on that. I would hope that we consider some of those options because, as I say, remediation of the problems for this cohort is a, a priority item. Yeah. Uh, Mackie, this was probably for you. Kristen asked, larger districts have had a harder time pivoting uh, with, with the pivot agility. Is that true? And, and she asked, is there an expectation to see larger districts sub, subdivide to improve their agility? Well, so it's interesting to me that um, <clears throat> agility hasn't been necessarily correlated with the size of the district or the size of the, of the unit or how many students yeah. are involved. There's a different characteristic, and it's the willingness to be adaptive and nimble and uh, sort of iterative in your solution that seems to have made the difference. And that's been shared by many large districts, and there have been large districts that haven't handled that well. And the same is true of smaller schools and smaller systems. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's size as much as it is a, a, a sort of a, a get-it-done attitude and adaptability. Got it. Uh, Ed asked, this time may be an opportunity for major educational reform. What do, uh, what do the panels recommend or foresee? You've talked about some of them, Mackie and Rick. What other, what other big opportunities exist to make our K-12 system uh, much better? Well, I'll go first on this one. Okay. Thank you. Um, so we have had a, a heavy reliance on seat time as the fundamental uh, guarantee of education. In other words, um, school districts get paid for uh, daily attendance, seats, you know, seats filled, and as long as they provide a certain number of instructional minutes, that's supposed to be a good proxy for learning. Mm -hmm. I think the opportunity now switches to uh, out of necessity because students are coming to their new school year in all different places of readiness and, and learning loss. So I think the focus shifts now to a mastery-based system, and that's one that ties directly into the things that Rick has been talking about in terms of economic viability. Got it. So I would come back uh, in answering that question to sort of my simple statement about schools. The most important element of a quality school is a highly effective workforce and highly effective teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and any kinds of policies that promote a more effective workforce uh, lead to better performance. So that's the reason why many people like the idea of choice to provide incentives to have a better uh, quality teaching force. Um, that's the why, why people have gone to other models of evaluating the effectiveness of teachers and rewarding them. Uh, that's the key. And whether we can get to that or not in a different world is still an open question. Yeah, well, I really like that idea, though, because one of the things that that suggests, and this goes back to um, Kevin's question, I think, uh, we actually do have talented teachers in almost every system. The, mm -hmm. the, the constraint is that we only let them teach 22 kids. Mm -hmm. And so if you thought about the opportunity to really leverage 
the exceptional teacher using the kinds of technology that many districts have invested in heavily just in the last few months, you could actually come up with improvement in outcomes by letting the really, really good teachers do the instruction and let other teachers carry along as learning coaches or, or filling other functions. So I think there's, there's an open book on whether we can do that. So you're talking about technology solutions that will leverage the best teachers in exactly. ways that we don't see right now. William asks the following question. Can you guys give examples of programs which are showing real dedication to new means of teaching? And I guess he's talking either charter, district, private, where, you know, where are the real stars in innovative teaching? Well, Mackie, you want to talk about Summit? Well, so, uh, yes, I, I would say that there, there is a network of schools in, that operates in the West uh, called Summit Public Schools, and they have already developed, previous to COVID-19, uh, the Summit Learning Platform, which is actually deployed in, I believe, about 400 schools across the country. It dramatically alters the relationship between students and student material and learning in a way that I find intriguing and has had uh, early indications of great success. I'd also say that there are new models of collaboration in the COVID environment where families are finding out which families are strong in particular subjects and using those parents to be coaches in subject matters. So if somebody has an engineering degree, they take the science or the math, and if somebody else is you know, really good in literature, they do the ELA, English language arts piece. Um, and I've been intrigued by the sort of organic uh, recognition of talents and gifts and deploying those in new ways. So it, it does come back, it does come back though, to all of these solutions really involve high quality teachers. And that's been a strength of many of the best school systems is that they have really high quality teachers. It's finding ways to integrate those very talented people into the uh, broader education. Got it. Well, we reached the end of our time. Concluding comments from either or both of you? Well, I think that we have opportunities here, but we also have lots of, of concerns. Um, the one thing I would want to say immediately is that we should in no way blame our schools for being unprepared for this or not doing a good job in the first month and a half. Um, the example that I typically give is that uh, colleges and universities are in many ways better suited and better prepared for this kind of change than the K-12 system, and yet all the colleges and universities are struggling with what they're going to do in September. Stanford still has not made a decision on what it's going to do about teaching and instruction in September. And so if the best situated and best placed um, parts of our system are having trouble, we shouldn't uh, blame the K-12 system for struggling. Well, I would have a different uh, take on last words. What I would say is that um, there's a real opportunity at Hoover uh, with the talented people who study education uh, being in demand across the country. There's a real opportunity for us to make um, strong contributions to uh, both strategy and decision-making you know, practically across the board. Uh, one, there's, there's a great need for clear thinking and uh, systematic approaches to problem solving. 
that that actually characterize much of the work that goes on here. And Hoover's ability to reach out and tap talent to help us in that uh, in that regard, as we found with the Hoover Education Success Initiative, really positions us uniquely to be uh, a force in this. And so I'm very much looking forward to the next year or two to see how we uh, make take advantage of that. Great. Rick and Mackie, thanks so much for the conversation today. It was wonderful. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Great. Bye, everyone. Stay safe. Our next Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing will be Tuesday, May 19th at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time with contemporary historian Timothy Garden-Ash. He will be talking about Europe, China, and the world after COVID-19. Timothy Garden-Ash is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of European studies at the University of Oxford. He is the author of 10 books on political writing or history of the present, which has charted the transformation of Europe over the last half century. His essays appear regularly in the New York Review of Books, and he writes a column on international affairs in The Guardian, which is widely syndicated in Europe, Asia, and the Americas. You can join next week's briefing at the same link you signed in on today, and you will find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us today, and have a great weekend.